0: This episode is brought to you by a podcast I think you're going to enjoy. The legacy of Nikola Tesla was part of a broad period of technological advancement, economic transition, and social change. I recently started listening to a podcast that covers the history of this period. It's called The Industrial Revolutions. And if you like my podcast, I think you're going to like this one. Every month, the show highlights the major changes of the past 250 years, from the new textile mills of the 18th century to the push towards AI today as well as all the social and political effects they've had. So check out The Industrial Revolutions on your favourite podcast app, or by visiting industrialrevolutionspod.com. Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowich. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 25, A Star is Born, 1894. Hello everyone, welcome back to Tesla The Life and Times. When we last spoke, I'd outlined my plan for three episodes of Tesla Goes to the Movies before the next episode of the main show. Two of those are available now, but the third, about the movie The Current War, ironically the whole reason I started the Tesla Goes to the Movies sidecast, has taken longer to produce because, well, I moved house recently. The last time I moved was 11 years ago, when I was a single fella. I had moved pretty frequently for the 10 years prior, back and forth from university mainly, and I was usually able to be back up and running in my new space within a couple of days. However, in the intervening 11 years, I acquired a wife, three children, and an awful lot of stuff. So, my expectations of how long it was going to take to pack and move were completely out of whack with the reality of how it turned out. In the mad dash to finish packing, I, for some reason the power cord and cables for my mixer and microphones into one box, and all of my other equipment into another one. It took a lot longer to dig all of that stuff out than I thought, and rather than make you wait any longer for another episode of our main show, I thought I had probably better get back to it now. And what an episode this one turned out to be. Even though it focuses just on 1894, I ended up having nearly two hours worth of material when all was said and done, Now, that's fine for a special episode like the one we did on the Gilded Age or the one about the Chicago World's Fair, but it seems a bit much for an episode that looks at how Tesla's fame and celebrity began to grow after the World's Fair, so what I've done is split this episode into two parts about 1894. This episode will look at Tesla's continued efforts at invention, as well as some of his publications and accolades that came, thanks in no small part, to the help of T.C. Martin his friend, editor, and informal PR man. The next episode will focus on Tesla's laboratory and his most important friendship with Robert Underwood Johnson and his wife Catherine. As for the Tesla goes to the movie's sidecast, well, now that I've found my cables again, they'll still happen. In fact, I'll actually have to add another one. The new film Tesla, starring Ethan Hawke as the inventor, is already available in some regions and looks to be scheduled for release in Canada later this September. As soon as I can watch that one, I'll have a review episode about it. I'm hoping these can come out between the next few episodes of the main podcast, but one way or the other, you'll have them before the end of 2020. And that actually brings me to some housekeeping and maybe a bit of discussion about where the podcast is going as we edge closer to 2021. The last few months, I've actually got overage charges from my web host because so many people have been downloading both current and past episodes that, for the first time, I was over my monthly limit. Now, this is a really nice problem to have, it means more people are listening, but it got me thinking about ways in which I can make this podcast sustainable and run it on a cost recovery model. Being based in Canada, and with the major podcast distribution services all based in the United States... Paying in American currency means that I also pay essentially a 30% premium every month on my basic fees for my website and my hosting. Couple that with overage charges and, well, the costs can add up quickly. With three kids and now a mortgage, trying to at least break even on this podcast hobby would be nice. So I'm going to be looking into ways to make it possible for you, the listener, to help me cover the cost of doing the show. Unlike other podcasters, I don't harbor any illusions about this ever becoming a full-time job. Uh, Although, uh, if Spotify is listening, if you want to throw me a Joe Rogan-sized payday, I won't say no. While I realize the depths of a pandemic and unprecedented economic collapse are a terrible time to be asking anybody for spare change, I do hope to put some kind of system or systems in place that will allow you to chip in and help cover the cost of the podcast If you feel so inclined, and if you are able to do so, no pressure. If everybody who listened chipped in a buck each episode, Dan Carlin hardcore history style, we'd be in great shape for the long term. So, sometime soon, I'll be looking to add in a PayPal donate button to the TeslitPodcast.com site. I might also look into setting up a Patreon, which is a service I've used to support creators of various kinds. And should neither of those options work for you for one reason or another, well, I'm happy to look at other alternatives. One generous listener last year wanted to donate, but PayPal wasn't an option, so he sent a check, which was greatly appreciated and really helped keep the show going for a while. So stay tuned for updates on all that, and if you're able, I hope you'll consider chipping in some spare change when the time comes. Now then, there have been some reviews to mention. Over on the Facebook group, thanks to Ginger Dawson James and Jonathan Fretter for their reviews. Brian Webster writes, really well done podcast and a great journey through history and invention with a compelling storyteller. My son is six and he's been listening along some of the time and has asked for rewinds to hear the fun facts again. And it has generated some fun discussions of faraway topics. Great job. Aw, thanks, Brian. I have a six-year-old myself and I know how those discussions can get really far out sometimes. Rex Luna said, I binged this podcast and the only downside is waiting for the next episodes. Fifteen out of ten recommended. Thanks, Rex. That's my kind of math. Over on iTunes, thanks to R. Mark Payton, the Chad 1122, Pod Listener 15, Joy Lee, Tristan Ludlow, Jazzy Don't Hate, and Simon Fire for their reviews. Also on iTunes, n one The Ghost says, First time trying a podcast. Searched up Nicola and press play, and was hooked." This is your calling, my man. Do not stop. Spider120 says, I love hearing about everything else that's going on in the world to get a better understanding of where things are at instead of just trying to piece things together or pausing a hundred times to Google stuff. Floating Pinay from the United States left a review titled simply Tesla with an exclamation mark. But Tesla is spelled with eight A's at the end, so I either read it like Oprah, Tesla! Or like Captain Kirk yelling at Ricardo Montalban either way floating panay says it's like a podcast and an audiobook in one i also appreciate the fact that the author provides analysis on his sources which helps to remind the listener to continue to think for themselves and we actually heard from a number of australian fans recently the what what from australia says couldn't rate it higher love this podcast concerned electricians also from australia write As electricians, we listen to this every day in the work van on our way to fight our own war of the currents. We still haven't decided if we are Team Edison or Team Tesla, but this podcast really cemented our dislike for Brown. Yeah, I'm with you there, guys. Keep generating good podcasts, and we'll keep listening. Please give us a shout out, Steve and Jared in Australia. Steve and Jared, thanks so much for listening. Not sure where you're based in Australia, but you have an amazingly beautiful country. I visited for about three months back in 2009, when I went for a friend's wedding and to fulfill a lifelong dream of visiting Australia, and I was not disappointed. And speaking of Australia, Sydney Harbour from Australia writes, Stumbled upon this podcast by accident when I mistakenly thought it was about Telstra, the Australian telecommunications company. Nevertheless, I have enjoyed every episode so far covering the achievements of this remarkable character. Stephen Cotterwich's narration style is very engaging and delivered with typical Canadian politeness. His knowledge of Tesla's background is impressive. I suspect they're close friends, or at least grew up in the same neighborhood. Looking forward to finding out in future episodes how Tesla managed to turn his talents from inventing electricity to now manufacturing electric cars. Such an interesting career. Perhaps Stephen could consider asking him to appear on the podcast to answer some questions from listeners. I'd love to hear from the great man himself. Now, lest you think this listener clearly doesn't get what's going on here, I have to tell you that this is a gag review left by my friend Chris Hoon from Australia. And that brings me to a correction that I'd like to make. After the last Tesla Goes to the Movies episode, I got a series of texts from Chris taking me to task for my characterization of the old TV show The Greatest American Hero as, and I quote myself, unwatchable now. Needless to say, Chris, who I know to be a huge The Greatest American Hero fan, took issue with that specifically an issue of the Greatest American Hero comic. Issue number one, in fact, signed by series star William Cat. He also sent me a photo of himself wearing his The Greatest American Hero t-shirt in protest of my slanderous review and demanding a retraction. And since I'd hate to lose a listener... <coughs> when I said that The Greatest American Hero had been visited by the Suck Fairy and was unwatchably bad, I, um, misspoke. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, What I meant to say was that The Greatest American Hero was a great show, is a great show, and will continue to be a great show until the eventual heat death of the universe. So say we all. We at the Tesla The Life and Times podcast regret the error. Now then, on with the show. On February the 15th, 1894, in Korea, massive peasant unrest erupts known as the Donghak Peasant Revolution. China and Japan, both allies of Korea, send military forces, each claiming to come to the aid of the ruling Joseon dynasty. Also on February the 15th in London, a French anarchist named Marshal Bourdin attempts to destroy the Royal Observatory at Greenwich with a bomb, but succeeds only in killing himself. On March 21st, and I'm likely going to pronounce this wrong, a Syzygy, it's spelled Syzygy, but I think it's Syzygy, a syzygy of planets occurs. A syzygy is an alignment of three celestial bodies, for example, the sun, the earth, and the moon, where one body is directly between the other two, so, for example, at the time of an eclipse. In this case, Mercury transited the sun as seen from Venus, and Mercury and Venus both transited the sun as seen from Saturn, but no two of the transits happened simultaneously. For you footy fans, on April 16th, Manchester City Football Club is formed in England. Also in Manchester, on May 21st, the Manchester Ship Canal and docks are opened by Queen Victoria, linking the previously landlocked English industrial city of Manchester to the Irish Sea. On June 23rd, the International Olympic Committee is founded at the Sorbonne in Paris. Rather conspicuously on July 4th of all days, the Republic of Hawaii is proclaimed by Sanford B. Dole, You recall that in episode 23 we discussed the shenanigans that went into the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy. Well, Dole served as the President of the Republic for four years, until his government secured Hawaii's annexation by the United States, which of course had been the whole goal of the toppling of the monarchy, after all. If the name Dole sounds familiar in a tropical context, that's because Sanford B. Dole was the first cousin once removed of James Dole, who would arrive in Hawaii in 1899 and found the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, which later became the Dole Food Company, known for, among other things, those little cans of tropical fruit salad. And that's your fun fact for today. The speed with which the Dole family turned Hawaii into a giant tropical fruit plantation makes me rather suspect that liberty and the rights of man weren't top of mind when they decided to topple the monarch. July 22nd sees the paris Rouen competition for horseless carriages, the world's first automobile competition, take place. Remember how China and Japan both came to the aid of Korea a few minutes ago? Well, it seems that each would have preferred to come to the aid of Korea by themselves, because by August 1st, 1894, tensions between the Empire of China and the Empire of Japan, over their rival claims of influence on their common ally, erupted into what comes to be known as the First Sino-Japanese War. On October the 15th, French army officer Alfred Dreyfus is arrested for spying. On December 22nd, he is convicted of treason and sentenced to life on Devil's Island in French Guiana. Thus begins what history remembers as the Dreyfus Affair, a political scandal that divided the Third French Republic from 1894 until its resolution in 1906. It remains one of the most notable examples of a complex miscarriage of justice and anti-Semitism. Dreyfus was a 35-year-old Alsatian French artillery officer of Jewish descent. He was charged with treason for supposedly communicating French military secrets to the German embassy in Paris. Evidence came to light in 1896 which identified a French army major named Ferdinand Esterhazy as the real culprit. But when high-ranking military officials suppressed the new evidence, a military court unanimously acquitted Esterhazy after a trial lasting only two days. To add insult to gross injury, The army then laid additional charges against Dreyfus based on forged documents. Emile Zola's open letter, J'accuse, stoked a growing movement of support for Dreyfus, putting pressure on the government to reopen the case. In 1899, Dreyfus was returned to France for another trial. The intense political and judicial scandal that ensued divided French society and embittered French politics for a generation as well as encouraged radicalization. The new trial resulted in another conviction and a ten-year sentence, but Dreyfus was pardoned and released. It was not until 1906 that Dreyfus was finally exonerated and reinstated as a major in the French army. He served during the whole of World War I, ending his service with the rank of lieutenant colonel. He died in 1935. Famous births in 1894 include, on January the 8th, Maximilian Kolbe, Catholic friar and martyr, And he's always been a hero of mine. After the invasion of Poland by the Nazis that began World War II, Kolbe was one of a few brothers who remained in his monastery, where he organized a temporary hospital. Even though he was arrested, he refused to sign Nazi documents attesting to his ethnic German ancestry, and thus his supposedly Aryan bloodlines. Upon his release, he and the other friars provided shelter to refugees from greater Poland, including 2,000 Jews whom he hid from the Nazis. When Nazi officials gave him permission to continue the monastery's publishing house, Kolby used his presses to issue a number of anti-Nazi publications. Kolby was arrested for good in 1941 and sent to Auschwitz as prisoner 16670. He was routinely beaten and lashed by guards for continuing his priestly ministry in the camp. At the end of July 1941, when a prisoner escaped, the deputy camp commander picked 10 random men to be starved to death in an underground bunker to deter further escape attempts. When one of the selected men begged to be spared for the sake of his wife and children, Colby calmly stepped forward and volunteered to take his place. Colby continued to minister to his fellow condemned men, leading them in song and prayer for two weeks, until only he was left alive. At the end, the guards injected him with poison. Maximilian Kolbe was declared a saint by the Catholic Church on the 10th of October, 1982, and the man whose life Kolbe had saved was in attendance at the ceremony. On February 3rd, Norman Rockwell, American artist and illustrator, was born. Rockwell was a prolific artist, producing more than 4,000 original works in his lifetime. He's most famous for the cover illustrations of everyday American life and culture that he created for the Saturday Evening Post magazine over nearly five decades. Among the best known of his works are Rosie the Riveter, Saying Grace, and the Four Freedoms series. He also painted six images for Coca-Cola advertising, including images of Santa Claus that not only cemented the look of old St. Nick in the popular imagination, but which are still rolled out on Coke cans and related advertising every Christmas. Billy Bishop, Canadian World War I fighter ace, was born on the 8th of February 1894. He was officially credited with 72 victories, making him the top Canadian and British Empire Ace of the war. He was a Victoria Cross recipient and eventually an Air Marshal. During the Second World War, Bishop was instrumental in setting up and promoting the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Today, Toronto's Island Airport is named in his honour. On March 27th, Colonel René Fonc, a French World War I flying ace, was born. He ended the First World War as the overall top allied fighter ace, with 75 enemy planes confirmed shot down, with some arguing that his actual tally was closer to 100, or even more. When all aerial conflicts of the 20th and 21st centuries are considered, Funk still holds the title of all-time allied ace of aces. July 26 sees the birth of English novelist Aldous Huxley. He authored nearly 50 books, both novels and non-fiction works, as well as wide-ranging essays, narratives, and poems. Huxley was widely acknowledged as one of the foremost intellectuals of his time. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature seven times, and was elected Companion of Literature by the Royal Society of Literature in 1962. His best-known works are The Perennial Philosophy, which illustrates commonalities between Western and Eastern mysticism, and The Doors of Perception, which interprets his own psychedelic experience with mescaline, and for which one of my favourite bands, The Doors, are named. And of course, his novel Brave New World, which envisioned a future dystopia. Harold Innes, Canadian economic historian and communication scholar, was born November the 5th. A professor of political economy at the University of Toronto, Innes was one of Canada's most original thinkers. Innes' writings on communication explored the role of media in shaping the culture and development of civilizations. He warned that Western civilization is imperiled by powerful, advertising-driven media obsessed by, quote, present-mindedness and the, quote, continuous, systematic, ruthless destruction of elements of permanence essential to cultural activity. Man, he would have loved Facebook and social media. He was an inspiration to a later University of Toronto professor, Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan wrote, quote, I am pleased to think of my own book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, As a footnote to the observations of Innes on the subject of the psychic and social consequences, first of writing, and then of printing. If you're sensing a theme that people born in 1894 were of prime warfighting age when World War I broke out 20 years later, well, you wouldn't be wrong. Virtually everyone I've mentioned so far played some part in the First World War, and here's yet another example. When I worked in scholarly publishing for the University of Toronto Press, which published several of Innes' classic works, including The Bias of Communication, I was once at a book launch at Innes College at the University of Toronto for a biography of Harold Innes. Some members of Innes' family were there, and since the book focused on Innes' service during World War I, they brought along a metal canteen that belonged to Innes during the war. They passed it around the room for everyone to see and hold. This canteen was twisted and ruptured by a piece of German shrapnel. Innes had been carrying it when he got too near an explosion, and the canteen stopped the shrapnel and saved his life. That's my own tangential connection to Harold Innes. And finally, Konosuke Matsushita, a Japanese industrialist who founded Panasonic, the largest Japanese consumer electronics company, was born on November 27, 1894. Now, when we left off at the end of episode 24, Tesla was writing to his uncle, Peter, telling him just how well things were going for him in America. It is difficult to give you an idea of how I am respected here in the scientific community, Tesla wrote. I received many letters from some of the greatest minds proposing that I stay the course. They say that there are enough educated men, but few with ideas. They inspire me instead of taking me away from my work. I have received many awards, and there will be more. And he was right. By 1894, after his triumph at the World's Fair, Tesla might have been at the peak of his fame, fortune, and success. 1894 would be a year of glitz and glamour for Tesla, as he worked to raise his profile and polish his reputation amongst New York's high society. He was still involved in the electrification of Niagara Falls, which we'll talk about in the episode when we turn back to the War of the Currents, as well as various other research projects. But the wheel of fortune always turns. Already, cracks were beginning to show in Tesla's fortunes, or rather his actual fortune. In a different letter he'd sent his uncle in November of 1893, Tesla said, I have just completed a new invention that is great. Success is wonderful to me in every aspect except money. That will come soon. But it wouldn't. Not really. Because having given up his patent royalties at Westinghouse's request, money, and its shortage, would become a constant theme for the rest of Tesla's life some 50 years. So, when Tesla claimed to his uncle that he had, quote, completed a new invention that is great, what was he talking about? In all likelihood, he was referring to yet another refinement of his oscillating transformer, one which he felt would enable him to perfect his wireless lighting system. This time, as yet another way to get around the need for a spark gap, as in DC systems, Tesla inserted a spinning turbine between the terminals of the spark gap. Sparks leapt between the stationary terminals and the turbine blades, but the sparks were shorter and quicker as a result of the turbine spinning rapidly. To minimize any chance of arcing between the blades and the terminals, Tesla immersed the entire spark gap in oil. By pumping oil through the tank, the flow of the oil turned the turbine blades that interrupted the sparks. Using this circuit controller, Tesla was able to produce frequencies in the range of 30,000 to 80,000 cycles per second, and he filed a patent for this new circuit controller in August of 1893. But it wasn't until he realized that, thanks to the new circuit controller, the capacitors in his oscillating transformer could store more and more energy with each rapid charge and discharge cycle, that he really understood its potential for storing and delivering tremendous amounts of electrical energy in short, concentrated bursts. For instance, explained Tesla, If the engine used to power the AC generator is of 200 horsepower, I take the energy out for a minute interval of time at a rate of 5,000 to 6,000 horsepower, then I store it in a condenser and discharge the same at the rate of several millions of horsepower. Neat trick. Understanding that he could use his oscillating transformer to concentrate power, Tesla started to think bigger. He began modifying his circuits in order to transmit power across a room and light lamps without any wires. Whereas before, to pull off this stunt he needed to be standing between two charged plates, thanks to his new ability to increase the concentration of power, he transmitted power between transformers at a distance of 10 or 20 feet. Not super far, but enough for Tesla to believe that transmitting power wirelessly all around the globe would soon be possible. His first wireless lighting system installation was at his lab. Tesla used his oscillator to charge a bank of capacitors that in turn were connected to a large cable that ran around the perimeter of the main hall, which was 40 by 80 feet. Effectively a coil with just one turn of wire, this large cable took the place of the primary winding of the old second transformer. On the receiving end, Tesla used a three foot tall coil in place of the secondary winding of the old second transformer. I'll put a photo of this coil in the show notes at teslapodcast.com. As you'll see, it looks like a wide squat drum with a light bulb sticking out of the top. Mounted on casters, this receiving coil could be rolled around the lab to see where it worked best and adjusted to better resonate to the frequency generated by the transmitter. Having perfected his system by February of 1894 and remembering the lessons he had learned five years earlier working with Peck and Brown, Tesla began his campaign of patent, promote, sell to attract new customers who would be interested in purchasing his work. And there beside Tesla the whole time was T.C. Martin. Thomas Commerford Martin is a name we've mentioned before. He was the editor of Electrical Engineer, one of the leading weekly electrical journals of the era, and an all-around big deal in the electrical profession. He was also a longtime friend and tireless promoter of Tesla and his works. Throughout the mid-1890s, T.C. Martin acted as Tesla's publisher, publicity manager, and hype man. Yeah, boy! More than anyone else, it was Martin who helped Tesla establish his reputation as a leading man of electrical science in the eyes of the profession, investors, and the public at large. Born in England, Martin immigrated to the United States originally to work with Edison at Menlo Park. Martin had the electrical industry in his blood as his father had helped lay the transatlantic telegraph lines with a young Thomas in tow. It was Edison who noticed Martin's flair for writing and who encouraged him to publish articles about the telephone and phonograph in New York newspapers. This led to Martin taking a job as an editor with the telegraph journal The Operator in 1882, a periodical which was soon renamed Electrical World. Along with his editorial work, Martin helped found the American Institute of Electrical Engineering in 1884 and served as the Institute's president in 1887-1888. If you remember way back to episode 10, Martin was first introduced to Tesla and his work when Peck and Brown invited him to a demonstration of Tesla's AC motors in the Liberty Street Laboratory as they were looking to hype his patents in advance of selling them. So impressed was Martin that it was he who cajoled Tesla into delivering his first lecture to the American Institute of Electrical Engineers in May 1888, which was entitled A New System of Alternate Current Motors and Transformers. Having remained close during the intervening years, you'll recall from our last episode that in 1893, T.C. Martin was along for the ride on Tesla's lecture tour to Philadelphia and St. Louis, as he covered both events for Electrical Engineer. When Martin discovered that in St. Louis an enterprising individual had printed up and then sold out of 4,000 copies of the National Electric Light Association Bulletin containing a biography of Tesla, Martin saw serious dollar signs. He spent the train ride back to New York discussing with Tesla plans for a full-length book based on the inventor's collected writings. The first half would be about the AC polyphase system, with chapters on motor design, single-phase and polyphase circuits, armatures, and transformers, and the second half would be made up of Tesla's lecture on high-frequency phenomenon that he had given in New York, London, and Philadelphia. Martin would write the introduction. Despite Martin's help, Tesla found writing a book in English difficult, Nevertheless, he understood that the book was an essential part of the bigger plan of establishing his reputation. As he explained to a cousin back home in Serbia, quote, In addition to all my work, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be unusually evil, by which Tesla probably meant difficult or demanding. I intend to announce various apparatus and experiments that are going through my head after some years of work. I have compiled everything from what I have read in magazines and what is new. It can hurt me or possibly help me. My ambition is to come out not as a technician, but as an inventor. The book, The Inventions, Researches, and Writings of Nikola Tesla, appeared in January 1894 and ran almost 500 pages. Despite his struggles writing the book, Tesla must have been pleased by the review in the New York Times, which noted that while the assembly of the materials for the volume must have been, quote, by no means an easy task, Tesla and Martin had pulled it off successfully. At this point... Tesla did what I can assure you, based on my 15 years in the publishing industry, most new authors do. He gave away a whole bunch of copies of the book for free. He sent them to his family in Serbia, to his friends, to his former colleagues at Westinghouse. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, certainly. Publishing a book is a moment to be celebrated, and it's only natural you'd want friends and family to celebrate with you. Plus, you just wrote a book. You want to show off a bit. Which is why every publishing contract lays out how many free copies of their own book an author is entitled to once the volume publishes. The problem is what happens next, and it always happens. Having exhausted their own supply of gratis copies, the author invariably contacts the commissioning editor, which is what I did, and either asks for more free books or, having been turned down, asks you to send copies to people directly on the author's behalf which is essentially the same thing as giving the author more free books, except now you're also paying the postage. My record for such a request is being sent a list of 73 additional people, yes, I counted, that the author would like copies sent to after running out of his own free copies. When you consider that I worked in academic publishing, where there might only be a handful of experts on the planet who would be interested in the topic of a specific book, as well as in textbook publishing, where there might only be a handful of people in the whole country who teach the relevant course, you can understand how sending free copies to what might prove a sizable chunk of the potential customer base is not a great way to ensure a successful sell-through of your print run. And it seems like T.C. Martin had that same frustration when it came to Tesla. Perhaps you would like to make us a bid on the whole edition, Martin only half-jokingly suggested when Tesla continued to badger him for more free copies. Your request for more copies is just too hard, Martin told Tesla. It seems to me the Pittsburgh boys, if they love you, ought to be willing to blow a little money of their own on the book. Martin's compromise was to send Tesla a dozen copies at reduced prices. Despite Tesla's best efforts to give away every copy of the book, the inventions, researches, and writings of Nikola Tesla proved a strong seller. The first edition sold out within a month. W. Bernard Carlson says that a second edition sold out by the end of 1894 and a third edition published in February 1895 along with German and Russian translations. It's not clear, however, whether Carlson means additional printings of the book sold out, a printing is just more copies, or whether there were genuine new editions of the book. A new edition is usually something that includes new material, but that's just bibliographical nitpicking on my part. The point is, the book sold, and T.C. Martin made money, which he then foolishly gave to Tesla, when Tesla convinced him to lend him the full proceeds from the book. This was a very dumb move, because what Martin couldn't have known was that Tesla was terrible about paying debts. Terrible, as in, just plain didn't pay them. And Martin never saw a penny of that money ever again. The men would eventually have something of a falling out, mainly for other reasons, but Martin, decades later, was still grumbling about the two years of work on the book that came to nothing as a result of this loan. But that's all in the future. For right now, in 1894, Martin is still Tesla's loyal hype man. Flavor! Flavor! And he took his role of promoting Tesla as an up-and-coming scientific celebrity seriously. He arranged for a bust of Tesla to be sculpted by someone named Wolf. And wait for the wolf who should be coming directly. You send in the wolf? None of the sources list a first name for this wolf, and the only sculptors I could find with that name were either too young or too dead to have been the sculptor in 1894, but let's just assume that this was a big deal. Martin also connected Tesla with Gianni Bettini, a swanky early audiophile who had made several improvements to Edison's cylinder phonograph. Drawing on his social connections, Bettini recorded the voices of opera singers, presidents, and popes. He wants to display his marvelous collection of song cylinders, Martin wrote to Tesla, informing him of the plan. He wishes the honor of catching your voice as well. Sadly, it's unknown whether this or any recording of Tesla's voice remains in existence. There are some dubious YouTube clips that claim to be of Tesla's voice, but there's no way to prove for certain that they're him. I rather suspect they're not. In an era when it's so easy for us to record our voice and image, it's Strange to think that even just a hundred years ago, it was a rarity for people to do so unless they worked in some kind of media like film or radio. And given the technology of the 1890s, phonograph cylinders used a kind of hard wax on which sound was inscribed via a sharp needle, the recording mediums were delicate and easily lost through accident, neglect, or even just the ravages of time. Martin also arranged a dinner for Tesla with S.S. McClure a well-known magazine editor who was looking for contributions to the eponymous magazine he had just started. McClure's magazine was an illustrated monthly periodical credited with starting the tradition of muckraking journalism, which sounds like a bad thing. Today you'd probably think of muckraking as meaning some kind of scandal sheet, but at the time it was actually a positive description, as in the journalists were doing investigative watchdog reform-minded journalism by raking the muck of corporate and government misdeeds and exposing them to the harsh light of public opinion. This fit in with the late Gilded Age, early progressive era ethos of the mid-1890s. Though just a year old in 1894, McClure's was already a heavy hitter. The magazine featured both political and literary content, publishing serialized novels in progress, a chapter at a time, by the likes of Arthur Conan Doyle, Rudyard Kipling, Jack London, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Mark Twain. So, having an article or an interview in McClure's would have been quite a coup and great promotion for both Tesla and the book, which is why Martin was so keen on the men meeting. But, as he often did, and did increasingly often from this point onward in his life, Tesla sabotaged himself and torpedoed someone's best efforts to help him achieve what he wanted. Despite Martin's plan and McClure's clamoring for an article from Tesla, the inventor declined. "'Much as I would like to comply with your amiable request,' wrote Tesla to Martin, "'I find it impossible at present, as every moment of my time is taken up by work "'which I must finish without delay.' "'This surely drove Martin nuts, "'as he could see all his carefully laid plans falling apart before his eyes. "'I cannot very well call off McClure now,' Martin wrote in reply, "'after your little dinner which has simply made him more eager than ever for the article.' He knows now personally what he knew before only by hearsay, viz that you are a great man and a nice fellow. No article was ever produced. Despite Tesla's willingness to participate in promotional efforts in the Peck and Brown days, indeed, that was where he'd met Martin in the first place, and even as recently as the year before at the World's Fair, the tension between Tesla wanting to play the game to get what he wanted, investors, R&D funding, the sale of patents to people willing to develop them, And Tesla's seeming indifference to playing the game, or the sense that he couldn't be bothered because it was not as important as his current project was, caused mounting problems for the inventor for the remainder of Tesla's life. It eventually led to a widespread belief among his contemporaries that Tesla was an unreliable partner in business and invention, which of course made it increasingly difficult for him to secure the funding he needed and the whole loop fed back on itself. With Tesla's growing reputation at the time, however, came the accolades that come to those in the public eye. In April 1894, the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia presented Tesla with the Elliott Crescent gold medal for his work in high-frequency phenomena. The citation noted Tesla had, quote, developed a new and very important field of research in that direction in which little had been done before, and one which opened the way to very valuable results the most important of which is the rational generation of artificial or cold light as it is often called although he has not yet solved the problem from a commercial standpoint he has opened a probable way for the solution of this most important and difficult problem following that the university of nebraska go huskers offered tesla an honorary doctorate to celebrate their 25th anniversary but tesla wasn't interested in taking time away from his work to make the long trip by train from new york to lincoln nebraska a trip of several days each way. Martin urged Tesla to accept and wrote Robert Underwood Johnson, the super well-connected associate editor and later chief editor of the Century Magazine and a friend of Tesla that we'll hear more about next episode, to enlist him in convincing Tesla to take the degree. I have urged him to accept, wrote Martin. I want you and Mrs. Johnson to bring your influence on him also. Her spell is now a potent one, I fancy, with him, so far as any woman's can be. Now, if that sounds like kind of a weird thing to write to a man about his wife, well, we'll get to that next episode. For now, however, Johnson actually wasn't on board with the idea. It was, he thought, aiming too low. As Tesla had already received honors from ancient universities in England and France, Johnson felt it only fitting that a more prestigious institution than the University of Nebraska, go Huskers, be the first American university to award Tesla an honorary doctorate. And those more prestigious institutions also had the advantage of being a much closer train ride to New York, making Tesla more likely to accept if he didn't have to take that much time away from his lab. So Johnson took it upon himself to write to Professor Huey Fairfield Osborne at Columbia University, urging that that school offer Tesla a degree instead. There would be a particular appropriateness in Columbia giving him a degree, Johnson wrote, since his first lecture was, if I mistake not, delivered at the college, and since New York City is the scene of his most important discoveries. I think it may truly be said that there are few men occupying this unique position in both the theoretical and practical phases of scientific work. As to his general culture, I may say that he is widely read in the best literature of Italy, Germany, and France, as well as much of the Slavic countries, to say nothing of Greek and Latin. He's particularly fond of poetry and is always quoting Leopoldi or Goethe or the Hungarians or Russians. I know a few men of such diversity of general culture or such accuracy of knowledge. Professor Osborne knew Tesla and had attended the Columbia lecture and promptly spoke to the president of the university. And so it was that a few weeks later, in June 1894, Tesla received an honorary doctorate from Columbia and a few weeks after that, received the same honor from Yale. And also in 1894, Tesla finally became a United States citizen. He took great pride in being American, and for the rest of his life he kept his citizenship papers locked securely in a safe in his room. Next time, we'll be sticking with 1894 for one more episode. We're going to look at Tesla's increasing preoccupation with New York High Society and the money that it could bring his research, that began around this time, as Martin introduces him to Robert Underwood Johnson and his wife Catherine, who were to become Tesla's best friends and key supporters and social connections. And we'll also take a closer look at Tesla's lab, the incredible shows he put on there for the rich and famous of the Gilded Age, and the mysterious experiments he conducted with Mark Twain as their subject. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show please spread the word tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too or share a link to the show on your social media please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts it's a big help to the show past episodes as well as show notes for this episode can be found on our website at www.teslapodcast.com remember to sign up for our email list and you can keep up to date about the show on our facebook page contact me directly via email at teslaatkotowich.com, or find me on Twitter with the handle at Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowitch.